going to be called your children. And it is a privilege to come this morning and we come to the cross. Father, we come from so many different backgrounds and we all have different educational levels, different economic levels. We have different histories. But we are united by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and by His resurrection. And Lord, while we may hold other very little else in common, we hold in common the fact that we are children by by the grace of God. And that our hope is in the return of our Lord Jesus Christ who will come on the clouds of glory, set this world right, Bring us into his heavenly kingdom, and there we will dwell with one another and with our Lord forever and ever. So we give you praise, and we give you thanks, and we ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, we're glad you're here this day, and before I get rolling with with the message, one of the things, I do want to just a quick announcement when, when I'm done with this, with the message, Simone and I are going to be ducking out the, uh, the side entrance and, and, and heading out, not because we don't like you or anything like that. That has nothing to do. We, we, we love hanging out with you. Um, but we have a, uh, a funeral to do down in the West Valley um, this afternoon, and so it's going to be kind of a, uh, a tight schedule. So we're, we're busting out of here, and actually this is a, an individual who, uh, who had come to this church for... Some of you may may know Jeffrey. Um, you, many of you know Joan and Bill Williams. Um, if you've been around for a while, well, Jeffrey uh, Jones' great nephew um, passed away. I don't know about a month ago or so. He died of ALS. He was a young man, very young man. Um, but he would come to our VBSs and he would do a lot of the children's activities. And uh, so some of you may remember Jeffrey, and we were able to uh, to be with him. Uh, the the night before he passed away, and he had actually called us to drive down and be with him in the hospital, and uh, so we were able to pray with him, comfort his family, and so now we are going to go down and we would ask for your prayers. Um, it's an unbelieving family; they need the gospel, so we will be sharing the gospel with them. So. Um, if you are kids with yellow pieces of paper, you will still get taken care of. I have already made arrangements for that. I, I know what's important. And so if you have a yellow piece of paper, you will be taken care of. So don't think that you can skate today and just uh, mail it in. Somebody will be checking your work today. And uh, so keep that in mind. If you are... Uh, do not have a yellow piece of paper. You are more of a <clears throat> more mature audience, and you'll just listen because you you know you should. So we're studying. We're continuing our study in the Book of Acts today, and today we'll we'll look into the seventh chapter of the Book of Acts. And I I have to admit I was a little bit intimidated, and maybe not a hundred percent certain. Um, why we have this chapter, and I guess I found out I'm not alone as to why we have this chapter. To um, there are there are a lot of people. It's basically this is serm- this is Stephen's defense, or some people would say Stephen's sermon, or perhaps even Stephen's apologetic. And um, 
it, over just quickly reading it, it seems like all Stephen is doing is telling Jewish people their Jewish history. And, and, and it's easy to think, why in the world do we have this? Why do we have Stephen telling Jewish leaders Jewish history? And there have been a number of commentators, a number of people throughout history who have said, this is really a useless and uh, really kind of an empty passage of text. Now, we hold that this is certainly not empty. This, we, we hold that the entire Bible, Old Testament, all 66 books uh, of, of, of the Bible are inspired by God. So we don't come with that presupposition. We don't think that, oh, this is some empty thing. But there are many people who thought that this is of, uh, of no value. But when we consider that this is the longest speech in the book of Acts... Somewhere along the way, the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to make sure that this very lengthy message was recorded. And that by itself should cause us to perk up and say, huh, why would Luke give so much attention to this one sermon? This is longer than any sermon recorded by Paul. It is longer than any sermon recorded by Peter. It is maybe even one of the longest sermons recorded by Luke in both his gospel, and in the book of Acts. So we should, just by sheer length, that the Spirit inspired Luke to record this rather lengthy monologue, we should, just by that, say, hmm, there might be something here. There might be something of value for us. So let's go ahead and and look at it. I'm not going to read the entire text today, but as we go through it, I'll point out various places where we should be paying attention. But to get... Before we get to our our text today, before we get to chapter 7, let me just remind you of where we were last week. And you'll recall that we were introduced to Stephen, and I I mentioned to you all that I think Stephen may be one of the greatest men who's ever lived. This is an amazing individual. Just think of the descriptive words that are used to describe Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, a man of integrity. And you just, it goes on and on and on. He is lauded every step of the way. So we were introduced to Stephen and we found that two charges, two, um, two charges were leveled against Stephen. That the religious leaders had problems with Stephen. Stephen was going from synagogue to synagogue and he was preaching the gospel. And we found that while he was in these synagogues, men would rise up and dispute with him. And this was friendly dispute. This was friendly debate. It was a dialogue back and forth. But they were unable, the scripture says, they were unable to withstand his wisdom and his spirit. And basically what happened is some of the synagogue leaders and people in the synagogue lost the argument. And when you lose an argument, the, uh, the thing you do is you're... you're, uh, you're la- the defense of last resort is to call people names. And that's what they do. They start calling Stephen names. They say, well, he's a blasphemer. And he says all of these things. And they hire false witnesses to come in. And, and they level two charges against Stephen. And the first charge is that Stephen is speaking against the temple. And the second charge is that he speaks against or wants to undo the law of Moses. Now, these were false charges, but these are the charges that 
are brought against Stephen. You need to remember that the temple and the law of Moses are twin pillars of Jewish piety. In order for for us to be right with God, the Jewish people were holding firmly to their temple and holding to the laws of Moses. And so here comes a guy, some Christian, some Jesus follower, saying that the temple is being going to be done away with as well as the laws of Moses. And we discussed that. And when we, we came to the conclusion that um, he's actually not speaking against the temple or the laws of Moses, but that's on last week's sermon. So this week, here, here's what's going to happen. Stephen's going to make his defense. He's going to address those two charges. Am I really speaking against the temple? Am I really defying and wanting to disregard the laws of Moses? Stephen is going to make his defense. And so our text begins in verse 1 with, and the high priest says to Stephen, are these things so? And so Stephen's going to make his defense. Here's one of the things I want you to note about his defense. His defense, like most of the other defenses that we've seen in the book of Acts, is that he is not defending himself. He does not get up there and say, well, really, I'm, I'm innocent. And here's why I'm innocent. Here's what he does. He bears witness to the gospel. He's on trial, but he makes no defense in regards to his guilt or innocence. That is not his issue. And we saw that with Peter as well. Peter and the apostles were charged with different things, and they did not defend their guilt and innocence. They didn't say, here's all of the evidence that shows why I'm innocent. What they did was they bore witness to the gospel. I don't care about my guilt or innocence. Do whatever you want. I'm declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm doing. I've got a captive audience of Jewish leaders sitting around here, and I'm not going to defend whether I'm guilty or innocent. I am going to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. This should um, strike us, and we should not be surprised, because you'll remember way back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said this, and you will do what? You will be what? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Stephen understands that, and he is going to bear witness of Jesus Christ. Whether he's guilty or innocent, that's another matter, but he will bear witness of Jesus Christ. I think that's really, really important. And what the thing that he is going to bear witness to is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And we saw that way back in Luke chapter 24, when we were in the Gospel of Luke, how Jesus taught his disciples that all of the Scripture points to me. And he took them through the law and the prophets and the writings that all of them speak of me. The disciples learned that lesson well. We see that in Peter, in Peter's sermons, and we're going to see it here. All of the scriptures point to Jesus and find their fulfillment in Christ. And so when we read our scripture, when we read the Bible, we should, uh, it is helpful to read it within that framework, that he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. But you Jewish leaders like your forefathers have rejected the promises of God, you've rejected God's deliverer, and you find joy in only those things that you yourselves can create. So that's going to be a bit of a preview. He's going to point them, he's going to bear witness of the gospel, specifically what he's going to bear witness to is that you, Jewish leaders, like your forefathers, have rejected God's deliverers, and you rejoice and find satisfaction in only in those things that your hands can create. 
I'm not coming against the temple. I'm not coming against Moses. I am coming against the fact that you perverted the truth of God. So that's kind of where we're going to go. Not kind of where we're going to go. That is where we're going to go. Let me give you my strategy or kind of show you my work a little bit so that because this is a really long sermon and it's easy to get lost. So I'm going to try to break it down into some manageable bits. And here is the strategy that I'm going to follow. The first part of the strategy is that um, I noticed that there were at least two very key phrases that I think if we understand them, we will be better able to grasp the content and the heart and the message of what Stephen is trying to say. And the first key phrase is thrust him aside. They thrust him aside. We're going to see God's deliverers, God's chosen people thrust aside by their own people. That will be the first key phrase. I think that's going to help us. The second key phrase is... um, The phrase, the works of their hands are made by their hands. In other words, we're going to see that the people trusted not in the promises of God, but in the things that they could create. So these are going to be our two big issues. And I think this is how Stephen, what Stephen is mean, how Stephen is going to get across his point that you have always rejected God's deliverers. So it's not surprising that you do reject Christ when he came, that you thrust him aside, just like you've done every other one of God's deliverers, and you're trusting in your own works. That's going to be those two key phrases that I think are going to help us. The next thing I want you to see is um, what Stephen is going to do is he's going to take these Jewish leaders through four historic periods of Jewish history and prove those two points. He's going to show that through the, the, the life of Abraham, the life of Joseph, the ministry of Moses, and also the ministry of David and Solomon, that these characteristics have run rampant in your life, and they're rampant today, and therefore you're stiff-necked people and you need to repent. That's where he's going to go. It gets him into trouble, by the way. So that's... That's the preview. That's how I'm going to address this passage of text. These two key phrases are going to kind of drive um, uh, my understanding of the text. And we're going to see Stephen use these four historic periods of Jewish history to, uh, um, to bear witness to the gospel. All right? You with me? All right, because I'm, I'm moving along. Here we go. The first part is Stephen... Uh, brings up this idea. He begins with Abraham. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory, I love that phrase, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. I want to begin with the beginning of Stephen's speech. The God of glory appeared to Abraham. What a great phrase. But here's what's interesting. Where did the God of glory show up? The God of glory appeared to Abraham where? In Mesopotamia. This is Iraq. The God, in other words, the God of glory is not restricted to some specific zip code. 
God's glory was present in Ur when he called our father Abraham. And he called him by grace. Abraham had done nothing to merit God's favor. Abraham had done nothing to merit the glory of God appearing to him or speaking to him. And the glory, the God of glory, is not limited to a specific zip code, a region, a building, a location. Our God, the God of glory, will show up in a far-off land like Ur of the Chaldeans and make himself known. And so the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. And it is by faith that Abraham followed the words of God. Go out from your land to your kindred into the land that I will show you. And he went out. He left the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran. Then his father died and he moved from Haran into the land which you are now living. And he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot length, but he gave him a promise. By faith, Abraham followed the words of God. And he went out to, out to the land that God showed him, even though Abraham didn't even possess any of the land, but he had a promise. God made with him a covenant. And the covenant was that God would give him many descendants and they would worship God in the land where Abraham was now residing. You will note, there is no temple yet. There is no Mosaic covenant. There is no law of Moses. And there is no tabernacle. There is a God with a promise. And Abraham held firm in his belief. He believed that God's word is certain. I don't see the promise. I don't have any evidence of a promise. What I have is a promise from Almighty God. And so we begin with Abraham. Stephen moves along to Joseph. Verse 9, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him to Egypt, but God was with him. I'm going to just stop there. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, but God was with him. What an amazing statement. God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph where? Where? The glory of God appears to Abraham in Mesopotamia, and now God is with Joseph. Where is God with Joseph? God is with him in the pit when his brothers are negotiating with the Midianites how much he's worth. God is with Joseph when he's being falsely accused by Mrs. Potiphar. God is with Joseph when he is in prison, suffering for a crime that he did not commit. God is with Joseph in famine, and God is with Joseph in exaltation. God is with Joseph. Your forefathers are jealous of this man, but God never abandoned him. In fact, there is no, there is no temple. There is no Mosaic code. There is just God with his people. Joseph was God's deliverer as we go along. Now there came a famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all of his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died. He and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Joseph was the means by which God was going to deliver his people from famine and bring them into the land of Egypt where he would fulfill 
his promise of multiplying Abraham's seed. This was the commission given to Joseph. Joseph was God's deliverer. He was the means by which, he would, by which God would fulfill his promise to Abraham. Those, the famine threatens the covenant promise of God. It threatens to wipe out the covenant promises to Jacob and his family. But God has raised up a deliverer. God has raised up a person who would deliver them. God has already set, has already worked to fulfill his promise. He is not thwarted by any famine. He was rejected by our fathers, Stephen would say. He's rejected by our fathers. Our forefathers sought to kill him because they were jealous of him. But God was with him. God was with the deliverer whom our forefathers rejected. We come to the person of Moses. And when we get to the person of Moses, um, Stephen highlights three very distinct periods in the life of Moses. And And I'll look at these very, very briefly. Um, The first one will be um, his life in Egypt. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. As the time of the promise drew near, in the fullness of time, God is about to bring about his purposes. He's about to bring about his promises. Which promises? The promise that he made by covenant to our father Abraham. God has been faithful. And in the time when people of God are being enslaved, the promise of God is drawing near. And he was beautiful. This is a rather unfortunate translation. I think a better understanding would be that he was well favored. Moses, being well favored by God, in the fullness of time, God is going to bring forth a deliverer. And then we... And he is instructed in all the ways of Egypt. And when he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. Note that phrase, salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his brother thrust him aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Moses in Egypt he is brought up. He is he was well favored by God. He is going to be the deliverer of God's people. He attempts to do things by his own abilities, and the people thrust him aside. Who made you ruler and judge over us? Who are you to think that you can judge us? Who are you to think that you're some sort of boss over us? That's exactly what they said to, to Joseph. Who made you the boss over us? And they were jealous, and they. And they sold him into slavery. 
By the way, they say the very same things about Jesus. Who made you? Or Jesus said the same thing um, about himself. Then they thrust him aside. Who made you ruler and judge? They now have rejected Moses. And so, basically, Moses has a price on his head and he flees to the desert. He flees to Midian, the region of Midian. He is an outlaw there with a price on his head. And while he is an outlaw, he begins to shepherd a flock and he notices there's a bush burning. And the bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. And in his curiosity, he goes over and checks it out. And a voice out of the bush says, take off the the sandals on your feet because you're standing on holy ground. I am God. I am that I am. And Moses is like, who am I speaking with? I am. I'm the creator of all things. I'm the God of all things. God now in his great mercy makes himself known to Moses. God in his patience will send Moses back to deliver the ones who'd rejected him earlier. I want you to note, where does God make himself known? Where is God's presence? It's not in a building. It's not in a specific zip code. It is in the wilderness of Midian and some bush that God has made known, that makes himself known. His presence is made known, not in a temple. His presence is made known in some burning bush out in the middle of nowhere. And this God who appears and reveals himself to Moses says, Moses, you're my God. You're my guy. You're my deliverer. I'm going to send you back and you're going to deliver my people, even though they have rejected you. The third area of the life of Moses is in the wilderness. After he delivers the people out of slavery and brings them out of Egypt and brings them and is bringing them into the land of promise, Moses again, and now when the 40 years have passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight and he drew near to look at it. There came a voice from the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their groaning. I have come down to deliver them and now come. I will send you to Egypt. And then this this Moses, whom they rejected, this Moses, the rejected deliverer, the one about whom they said, who made you the judge and ruler over us is the one who's going to go back and be their judge and their ruler. This man, God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out. I love all of those um, very imperative, um, direct. This man, this Moses, the one whom you rejected, the one who is, uh, has a price on his head, this man whom you mocked and said, who, who made you boss of us? That one, I'm, God makes him your boss. That one, God sends back. That one is going to be your deliverer. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your bro- brothers. A direct uh, reference to Christ. This Moses, the one whom they rejected, is both ruler and redeemer. He is the one who will deliver God's rejecting people, and he will do so with mighty signs and wonders. Stephen's point, our fathers refused to obey him. Our fathers thrust him aside, and our fathers turned their hearts back to Egypt. Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. 
and their hearts turned to Egypt. What an amazing thing. That's our history. Stephen is saying to these religious leaders, that's our history. We have always rejected God's redeemers. We have always rejected God's deliverers. We have always rejected the people he has put in place to save us. We have rejected them. We have thrust them aside. And what do they do? They turn to the works of their own hands. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turn to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the, uh, to the idol and were rejoicing in what? They were rejoicing in the work of their own hands. We do not believe like Abraham in a God whom we do not see, who does not, uh, who does not appear in some sort of physical form. We only trust in the thing that we can make and put our hands on. We would rather be back in Egypt with a golden calf than the God who has made us. This is Stephen's... Remember, Stephen is bearing witness to the gospel. He is saying, listen guys, I'm not, I'm not, I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't said anything against the temple. I've said nothing against Moses. In fact, what's happening is the accused is becoming the accuser. What's going to happen is you're the guilty ones. <clears throat> And they made a God for them to worship, the work of their own hands. And God, it says, God turned them over to worship demons. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphan. The images that you made worship, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Basically, I turned you over to worship demons. You've rebelled against me. You've spurned me. You have not re- responded to, to my voice. I have sent deliverer after deliverer after deliverer. You've tried to kill them. And you've raised up the work of your own hands, and that's what you've worshipped. Here's the amazing thing, and I hope we don't miss this point. God has not abandoned this people. What an amazing thing. Even that, I turn them over to worship demons. But even still, I will pursue them and I will save them. I'm going to discipline them. I'm going to send them off to Babylon. Bad things are going to happen. But I'm not giving up on this people who has rejected me over and over and over again. What an amazing thought that is. God was faithful to his promise that he had made to Abraham. He brought the people through the wilderness and he brought them into the promised land. So let me give you just a brief summary before I move along because it's easy to get lost in this rather lengthy um, message that Stephen is saying. So the summary goes like this. So with Abraham, Joseph, and Moses, God is with his people. He is with his people not in the temple. He is with his people um, not in some sort of specific place. He's with them in Mesopotamia. He's with them in Egypt. He's with them as they're wandering through the wilderness. And despite his presence, the people reject the saviors that he has sent to them. He's present with them all over the place. He's not localized to some sort of zip code. But rather, wherever his people are, God is with them. And they still reject him. And then finally, Stephen brings up David and Solomon. Well, actually, Joshua, David, and Solomon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke 
to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations and drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? So Joshua brought the temple into the promised land, but it was, I'm sorry, brought the tabernacle into the promised land, and it was Solomon who built the actual temple. The tabernacle was just a tent. Um, that's really what it was. It was just a big tent. And it was portable because you had a nomadic people, so they would travel around with it. But when they became a non-nomadic people and settled and had Jerusalem and David had conquered the the Jebusites and established the city of David, which is called Jerusalem, um, it was there then that uh, a place was, was secured that Solomon would build a temple. But even then, as glorious and beautiful as Solomon's temple was, God does not dwell in temples made with hands. Stephen's point is that you want to contain God in a building that you've constructed with your own hands. And in doing so, you have set your hope on that which you can construct. You worship an image made by your own hands and you glory in a building that was built by your own effort. But God is not a God who is constructed by our own effort. He is the one who makes promises. He is the one who fulfills them. They rejoice in the work of their own hands. They rejoice in a temple that became a symbol of what they could could achieve. One of the great passages, one of the great sermons in the Bible is in Jeremiah 7. This is the temple sermon. And he begins the sermon with this. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You read that passage? Well, if you're reading through the Bible, you're probably getting fairly close to Jeremiah pretty soon. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They'd idolize the temple. God Solomon's temple is so beautiful and this is where God dwells. Nothing bad could ever happen. God would never let something bad happen to his temple. God dwells in this beautiful place. This is what we've made for him. Nothing bad will ever happen. And that was embedded with them even more when the Assyrians came and were outside the gates of Jerusalem and they prayed and the Assyrians went away and they said, see, God will never let anything bad happen to Jerusalem. God will never let anything bad happen to to his temple. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And Jeremiah goes on and says, and yet you commit adulteries and you, you thieve from one another, you steal an injustice and you worship Baals and you worship the false idols and you trust somehow that the temple of the Lord is going to save you. Then God rose, raised up a, an empire called Babylon, and they came in and they just leveled the place. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, God is not limited to a building. He is not limited to the work of our hands, as though somehow we construct this magnificent edifice that God is somehow present because we have built something and manufactured something. They have idolized the work of their own hands. And here is Stephen's summary. You stiff-necked people. (laughs) 
uncircumcised in heart and ears, and you always resist the Holy Spirit like your fathers did. Well, there's an interesting conclusion. I went to preacher school. They never told us to end a sermon like that. You stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to do it today. Who knows, though, there might come a sermon where it becomes appropriate. Just not today. I reserve the right (laughs) to conclude a sermon with you stiff-necked people. And if I do, I will be speaking to myself as well, by the way. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. He has just given a history of how our forefathers have resisted God's deliverance. God has sent His deliverers. You've resisted the Holy Spirit over and over and over again. You're doing it now. You find your significance, you find your joy, you find your satisfaction, you find your salvation in that which you can make on your own. You find work, you find your own joy in in your works. You do not find your joy and satisfaction and salvation in God alone. That is your problem. You boast in Abraham, but you don't know Abraham. You boast in Moses, but you don't understand Moses. And you boast in the fathers, but you do not understand the fathers. That's a pretty bold statement. For a Greek-speaking Jew to say to these Hebrew Jews, some Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jew, we've talked about Hellenistic Jews and Hebrew Jews, and Stephen is a Greek-speaking Jew, and he comes into the highest court in the land speaking to a bunch of Hebrews, Hebraic Jews, and says, you don't understand Moses. You don't understand our fathers. You don't understand Abraham. You don't understand David. You don't understand Solomon. You don't understand any of it because you're stiff-necked, hard-hearted, uncircumcised, Holy Spirit-resisting people. Because when we look back at what Stephen was teaching, and this we, we derived from what we talked about last week, they were accusing Stephen of quoting Jesus who said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. Tear down this temple and in three days I'll build it back up again. This is what Stephen was accused of saying, that Jesus that Jesus said, tear down this temple and in three days I'll build it up again. And of course John informs us that Jesus is speaking of the temple of his body. So let's go back to that. When Jesus died, what was destroyed? And when Jesus rose again, what was made new? That's really the issue, because that's what Stephen's on trial for, and that's what he's, he's dealing with. When Jesus said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, he, what he meant is that he was going to destroy this kind of religion. I'm going to destroy the kind of religion that says it's all in the work of my own hands, and that I can thrust aside God's deliverers. When Jesus died, he destroyed that. We talked about when Jesus died, all of the temple ceremonies, the entire temple became of no account anymore. All of the sacrifices, all of the temple ceremonies, all of the priesthood, everything died when Jesus died. 
the whole temple system, the whole mosaic system died when Jesus died. This is what he means. Tear down this temple. Or when you destroy me, you're going, when I die, this whole thing is going to go away and I'll rebuild it in three days. In other words, when I rise, I become the temple. I become the priesthood. I become the high priest. I become the sacrifice. I become the mercy seat. I become the blood of the lamb. I become the spotless lamb. I become all of it. Tear it down. Destroy it. And when you do, when you destroy me, you destroy the whole temple system. And when I rise again, I will reestablish it. But I'm now the fulfillment of everything. This is what Stephen is saying. This is what Stephen had been preaching. This is what they have problems with. He is not coming against the temple. He is not coming against the Mosaic system. He is simply saying that Jesus has fulfilled all of it. And your temple, while beautiful, is useless. The sacrifices that you offer there, well, pious bring you nothing. There is one sacrifice, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. There is one temple. Jesus is that temple. There is one blood that forgives us of our sins. That is the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You tore it down. You killed the, you, when you killed Christ, you killed your own system. And when he rose from the dead, he reestablished it. He is the entire fulfillment of everything that Moses was pointing to. Stephen understood this. Stephen, we are told, is a man of faith in the Holy Spirit, unlike stiff-necked, Holy Spirit-resisting people. He did not rely on his own achievements. He relied on the one who kept his promises. He relied on the God of glory. And he realizes that Christ is the one who receives all glory. So this is a rather long and involved passage of text. And we have really just skimmed the surface of it. But I think we've gotten at the gist. We've gotten at the heart of what um, Stephen was pointing to. He gives the rulers of Israel a history lesson. But not to teach them, simply to teach them their own history. He's giving them a history showing that you have always resisted God's deliverer. And you've thrust aside Jesus Christ as well. The fulfillment of all of the promises. And you have trusted in the works of your own hands instead of the promises of God to save you from your sins. That's your problem. You're stiff-necked. You're hard-hearted. You resist the Holy Spirit just like your fathers did. You're no different than your fathers. So I'll conclude with this. The first thing we should note is something I mentioned earlier. And that is how how long-suffering and patient God is. How God persistently pursues stiff-necked people who resist and reject Him. What an amazing thing that is, folks. How many times did you reject the Gospel before the one day when you called upon the name of the Lord and were saved? I rejected that message year after year after year after year. That pales in comparison to, the, to Stephen's audiences who have been rejecting God's message for generation after generation after generation. And here, God is still pursuing His people. He pursues stiff-necked people. And He does not cease bearing witness. So the first thing is, is God is patient and long-suffering. The second, more of a warning, 
And that is a warning against finding our satisfaction and salvation in the things that we can accomplish with our own hands. As though our own efforts can achieve anything in to merit our favor with God. They were finding, look at the temple that we've built. Look how glorious and beautiful it is. Even his disciples said, look how beautiful it is. And Jesus said, yeah, not one stone is going to be left upon it. This whole thing's coming down. It's not necessary. We don't need a temple. In fact, he's going to raise up a thing he calls the church, which is really interesting because the, the church on Randall Place meets in this particular building, but, and we discussed this last week in, in Bible study. What happens to the church on Randall Place if tomorrow this building burns down? Nothing. Church on Randall Place continues to function, continues to exist. We don't have a building. But the building is not a church, and the building does not represent the, the presence of God. The people of God happen to gather in this building. Too often times we, put, we find our satisfaction, we find our salvation in the things that we can achieve with our own hands. I'm a good person. I've done this. I can... Find God's favor in that, in this. I'll work it out. Me and God will work something out. God has already worked something out, right? He's already worked it out. And he worked it out by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins according to the scriptures, to be buried and to raise again according to the scriptures. That's already been worked out. I would encourage you, do not thrust him aside. And do not rely on the things that you can achieve by your own ability, but rather... Find your salvation, your hope, and your satisfaction in the mercies and grace of a God who is long-suffering. Folks, human effort is a fact of life. Yet, it is such effort that has kept Israel from knowing their Savior and true worship. And it is human effort that continues to keep people from knowing our God and Savior. So I would appeal to you now, lay aside your own self-righteousness, your own self-effort, and fall upon your knees and call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Don't thrust Him aside and don't trust in the work of your own hands. Father, we come before you this morning and we are grateful for this lengthy message from Stephen. What a great man, Lord. We could all strive to be like Stephen. All desire to be remembered as somebody who is full of the Holy Spirit, somebody who is upright, has integrity, blameless, wise. But ultimately, Lord God, I pray that we are like Stephen in the fact that we bear witness to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, who trusted not in his own works, did not trust in the fact that he was wise or trust in the fact that he was that was a man of integrity. He understood that all of those things came from you. I pray, Lord God, that you would enable us to trust you, to love you, to serve you, to honor you, and to be to call upon your name and be saved. These things we ask in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.